I received my first call of an individual over this, this four foot pedestrian rail. Your only out you feel is giving up your life. The look in her eyes is they want to live, but they can't see how, and they're in such emotional pain that they just can't take it anymore. What would be the first thing you would ask me? We've all seen it where an officer or a citizen rushes up on a bridge and grabs someone and pulls them over. Fantastic, great. I want that individual to come back over that rail on their own. So if you have the courage to come back over the rail, you have the courage to fight and continue on. What got them to jump? Usually when they let go, for negotiators, is not to look. Don't look down and watch that body. Oh my gosh. Many times it's the folks who have been suffering for a long time, they've just had enough. They're emotionally exhausted and they can't see a way out. We want to get them some help, but it is difficult. You know, there's not a lot of money put into mental health. Sometimes they're waiting two months to get an appointment with a mental health professional. I mean, that's not right. If you're in crisis, we need to get help now. My guest today is uh, Sergeant Kevin Briggs, 23 years CHP veteran in the Army prior to that. And he uh, uh, gave a talk on TED, which was so powerful, The Bridge Between Suicide and Life. And then later on, he wrote a book called The Garden of Golden Gate, Protecting the Line Between Hope and Despair. Over 200 lives were saved of people who were about to commit suicide, jumping off that bridge, which is known for suicide. And, and, and the motivation behind why he wanted to change people's life is very deep. And I want to really get into it. It is something that a lot of people uh, struggle with today, mental anxiety, panic, um, depression. And, and I really want to hit up that topic. And that's not just in regular life. People go through it in business. There's a lot of people that are running a business that are running out of money. They're by themselves. They're alone. So I wanted to bring him on. So Sergeant Kevin Briggs, thank you so much for being a guest on Vitamin. Yes, sir. Thank you for having me. Absolute pleasure. So a question for you. I know the story. I've read it. I got your notes here. I've seen your talk multiple times and I've gone through it. You know, if you can walk us through your past all the way up to the first time you were able to save someone from jumping off the bridge, if you can kind of give us the backstory there. Sure. Right out of high school, way back in 1981, I went into the army, into the infantry and was stationed up in Fort Lewis, Washington for a year. And then I went over to Germany. And when I was in Germany, just at age 20, I was diagnosed with cancer, testicular cancer. So I had my first operation in Germany. They sent me back to San Francisco, Letterman Army Medical Center, where I had two more operations and found out that cancer had spread up in my abdomen. So and then I went through the chemotherapy. And you know how chemotherapy is, it's, it's brutal. I went down to 135 pounds or so, lost all my hair, really tough stuff, but went through all that. Took about a year off, lived at home with my parents, worked with my daddy at a printing shop in San Francisco for a bit, and then wanted to get in law enforcement. I applied several places, but I was accepted by California Department of Corrections. So I worked at Soledad Prison for a year and then San Quentin State Prison for two years. And when I was working at San Quentin, a guy I was working with us wanted to go out for the California Highway Patrol. And I'm like, and I don't know. He kept bugging me to do it with him. I go, I don't think I can make it. And those guys <laughs> squirt away at all. And, but uh, I went through it and I made it. And unfortunately, he didn't. So I you got to be kidding me. Uh, he didn't make it. So. <laughs> he didn't imagine, hey, let's go to this. But you don't make it. And it was your idea in the first place. <laughs> You know, you know it's, a, it's a six month living academy 
and I just worked my butt off there. I graduated fourth out of the class, but I, I couldn't believe it. I just I just studied, 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 gave up six months out of my life to be there. I, I got to do this. So started out over by Oakland, California. Many people have heard of Oakland. I was in the East Bay uh, in Hayward. Spent a few years there and then got back over to Marin, where I'm from. And if folks don't know, Marin connects to San Francisco via that Golden Gate Bridge. So I didn't know a lot of officers did not want to work done on this bridge for a reason. And I had crossed that bridge being from Marin. I crossed that bridge hundreds of times, but I had no idea that the number of suicides from this bridge and what people were going through. Most people go there, celebrate birthdays, have a great time. People from all over the world go there. So I started working on this bridge and I, I didn't know what to do. I received my first call of an individual over this, this four foot pedestrian rail. And I'm thinking, I don't know what to say, what to do. I wasn't trained for this in any way, shape or manner. Um, young woman over the rail, I just went up and compared to what I would do now was, was quite different because I didn't have any training and it was horrible. And I'm thinking if she jumps, is it my fault? Am I responsible? So this was, it, it sucked. It really did. But I spoke with her for some time. I don't remember how long it was. Um, I think she was on the verge of being homeless. She had suffered from mental illness. She had a lot of things going on, but I did have empathy. And so the look in her eyes, which most people that I think that I've spoken with is they want to live, but they can't see how, and they're in such emotional pain that they just can't take it anymore. And I'll tell you, they don't want to hurt anybody else. They just can't take it anymore. So this young woman did come back over the rail. And after seeing the look in her eyes, both over the rail and when she came back, this look of relief, but still scared and wondering how things are going to go. I wanted to, to study more and learn more about this and talk to people who have done this. I wanted this to be my craft, so to speak. Uh, and that's what I did. So eventually, uh, way later in my career, I did go through the FBI crisis negotiator school, and that helped tremendously. And I found out some things I, I were doing that, that was great and other things that, oh, I really needed to think about telling folks and, and trying to talk to folks about. So um, that was fantastic. But Such as what, what were some of the things, if you don't mind sharing with us? Sure. Like what to say and what not to say. And what I tell folks now is things not to say, like you should calm down. I understand and things will get better. So if I'm talking to someone, I say, you know what you should have done? It kind of slaps them in the face. And these are things that I did sporadically once in a while, but but I really teach this now when I'm doing my presentations. So you should calm down. Of course, we try to stay clear of that. You tell someone to calm down, what do they do? They get madder than hell. You know, nobody's ever calmed down from telling them to calm down. I understand what you're going through. Do I really? You know, I've been through a divorce. I had the cancer. I've had head injuries, multiple surgeries. Um a lot of stuff going on, but I don't know what that individual has been going through. Can't really compare it so much, but if they say, you don't know what it's like to have cancer. Well, I did. We can talk about that. Maybe some of the commonalities, the similarities in that, and many times commonalities will create comfort. And that's what we're trying to do is build rapport. And then telling someone things will get better. Um, I can't do that, really. I just, I don't know. I'm not a mental health professional. I'm not a doctor. I hope they will. You know, if they're seriously contemplating suicide and, and of course, working up on the bridge, they're there. But telling them, at least you'll have the opportunity for things to get better. And then also, why? Why did you do that? 
it places blame on folks and it really will shut down that rapport that you're trying to build. Oh, can you say that again? So if you say, why did you do that? It allows them to blame, uh, bl- uh, uh, unpack that again. It's like, I'm blaming them. Well, why are you here? Why'd you do that? What are you doing that for? It tends to shut them down. It really does. You know, why did you do that? So don't ask that question. Don't ask right. that or even use it as a statement. Exactly. That doesn't seem right. Yep. So we're really just trying to listen. And I tell folks 70, 30, 80, 20, if you can listen for that amount of time, because a lot of us, including myself, we tend to chat too much. We're not learning anything. Let that individual speak. If they want to talk, let them speak. It's fantastic. They're venting. And we all know that venting is wonderful for folks to allow them to get everything out, what's been going on. And we're, we're learning more about them. So let them speak. So and then that and then what did they teach you outside of let them speak? Was there, for example, let's just if you don't mind role playing, if you came to me and you saw me on the bridge, what would be the first thing you would ask me? So here's what I would do. Let's say you are over the rail standing on this I-beam that's that's over there. Instead of me just walking up to you and start a talk, I'm gonna stay about 10, 15 feet back. And I'm just gonna open handed and go, you can see I'm in uniform, I'm somebody of authority. Just go, hey. I'm Kevin. Is it okay if I come up and chat with you for a while? And when you allow me to, boom, that, that's an, a great icebreaker right there. I'm giving you the opportunity to allow me to come up because many, many times these folks have been kicked down so often and told, no, 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 you need to do this. You should have done that. By me asking a question, is it okay if I come up and speak with you? I think that sets it for a really good tone for that interaction. And when you do, I'm going to explain it. I'm Kevin Briggs with the patrol. I'm here for you today. What's been going on? I'm not going to touch you. I'm not going to grab you. And we've all seen it where an officer or a citizen rushes up on a building or onto a bridge or something and grabs someone and pulls them over. Fantastic. Great. But I want to go deeper. I want that individual to come back over that rail on their own. Because imagine the courage that it takes to go over that rail to begin with. Now, think and imagine the courage that it takes to come back over that rail. Yeah. So if you have the courage to come back over the rail, you have the courage to fight and continue on. Now, and that's my thought process on that. And, and, and has it ever happened where you've gone up and you have started a conversation, they didn't listen to you and they jumped off? Has it happened right in front of you? Yes. Yes. Unfortunately, yes. How, how- People have said they just want some time to, to really get it into their head and yeah. Anybody ever makes it? I remember I saw one story where one gentleman made it. Did, did you ever have any stories of people making it or no? Yes, um, I did have a guy that made it, but I was not there when he jumped. I was actually busy with another case. So I met him in the hospital. So they're, they're very, very few. And usually if they do make it, they have substantial injuries also. When, when you're there and, and, and those who jumped, what was the tipping point that got them to jump? Like what did, do, I'm sure there's a commonality amongst those who jump. And then after they jump, do you see a reaction from them the moment they let go? Usually when they let go, um, my heart breaks. I start tearing up a lot of times. It, it, it just messes you up. You know, it's horrible when you're there. So what I teach folks now for negotiators is not to look. Because that fall, that's what's going to be in your head. So I, when I talk to negotiators and those who do this type of work, I tell them if it's inevitable or that person all of a sudden leaps on you, 
Don't look down and watch that body. Oh my gosh. Wow. I did. I did the times when I worked because I wanted to watch. I want, well, really not watch, but mark that body because it's so treacherous down there with the currents. So we, we have markers that we throw and all that, but that's, what's in my head, not talking to that individual, but that jump and that hit, and that's, what's going to mess people up later on down the line. You know, you see a lot as, as an officer and paramedics and things, that's in your head and, and we able, need to be able to continue to work and do the work that we want to do. So uh, Kevin, out of all the people that uh, uh, jumped, uh, were majority men or women? Uh, men. More men. Yeah. Yes. How about out of the 200 that are suicidal to take their lives, what percentage would you say are men, male versus female? Oh, I would say it at least 95%. Oh, you got to be kidding me. So majority is only men who are so what does that tell you from your study is the fact that men are more willing to commit suicide jumping off a bridge. Is there anything to that data or it's just accidental that it's 95-5? No, I, I think it, it really is. It's guys because we don't come out and talk about what's going on with us. There's a whole variety of things. We think we're the breadwinners. We think we can fix everything. We don't need help. I can handle this on my own. And then it becomes too much and you don't want to seek help. And you're only out, you feel, is giving up your life. 95.5. Would you have ever guessed it's 95? I would have never guessed it's 95.5. Uh, what, what, what were some of the things like you would hear? For example, is it my, my lost my job? I lost all my saving. My wife is leaving me. My kids don't want to see me anymore. I can't give up drugs. My, what, what stories were the most common stories you heard that got them to that point? All of all of that once in a while, it's a criminal act that they did. Uh, I remember one individual who jumped before we even got there. He had a sheet in his pocket. He had just got out of county jail from being booked in for child you know, abuse. So he didn't want to have to go through that with his family and everything. He came right up to the bridge and jumped. But the three things that I dealt with most of the time was folks felt like they were a burden. They suffered from a mental illness, whether diagnosed or not. And if they had been taking a medication for a mental illness, they stopped it sometimes prior or sometime prior. And that's huge. If you stop that medication, we always hear, don't stop any medication that you're on. I mean, especially true with mental illness, consult your doctor. There's side effects with all of this. Um, I've been diagnosed with depression. I've been through several therapies and medications, you know, some work, some aren't that slick, but they also have side effects and things too. So Many times it's the folks who have been suffering for, for a long time. They've just had enough. They're emotionally exhausted and they can't see a way out. They cannot see a way out of what's been going on with them. What, what gets them to come back over? And how long is that process? Meaning like from the moment you say, hi, I'm uh, Officer you know, Briggs. Uh, uh, you mind if I come up and speak with you? I'm not going to touch you. I'm not going to get close. I just want to speak with you. And then you start the dialogue with them. What's generally the timeline from you start talking to them to them coming back and not, not wanting to take their lives? You know, I would say generally an, an hour or so. Oh I've had as low as 20 minutes. I had one that was a little over eight hours. On so average, it's an hour? Yes. And when, and when that hour is done, you're drained, you're beat, you're exhausted. I bet. I mean, I bet. And how about the eight hour when you, you said six hours or eight hours? Eight hours. Yeah. What case was Absolutely. that? Why, why did it go eight hours? What, what, what was the I, challenge I, I, of that I, individual? Um, 
I was working with the Marin County Sheriff deputy on that one. We would trade back and forth. And this gentleman was a construction worker and construction workers have a high rate of suicide because of the seasonal thing and the high use of drugs and alcohol and, and everything involved in that. But he would start to come back and then he didn't want to, he would go back. He was, he had issues with his wife, money issues, all these different things going on. So it just took a very, very long time. Now on top of this, working on this bridge, we generally do not stop the traffic. So you got the cars going by, you got the noise. It's very noisy. It's a really lousy place to conduct these negotiations. Plus the wind and it's always cold. Um, it's a tough one. It really is. But this, that gentleman did eventually come back over the rail. And then we take them to one of the local hospitals to get evaluated. Is it a crime? Is it considered a crime or no? Are they getting arrested? Are they taken in or no? And that's a great question. I, I like to talk about this one. Um, no, it is not a crime here in the United States. In some countries, it is. To attempt suicide, it is a crime, but not here. And this is what I tell folks. And I think this is very, very important. You see people suffering from mental illness, and then law enforcement comes out, and that individual is handcuffed. And people get all up in a roar about this. But I want to tell you something that folks need to hear. And what I would do is I would tell the individual in dealing with them when they were over this rail or wherever I'm at on the bridge that especially let's just say over the rail when you come back over not if but when you come back over I have to place you in handcuffs and that's only for your safety and our policy that's all it is you're not under arrest you haven't done anything wrong so most of the time they have not done anything wrong they don't have a warrant so if they come back over I've already discussed it with them I've never had an issue after discussing it with an individual. Let me get this straight. So I'm on the, the, the individuals on the verge of jumping. I'm on the other side, not back where I'm safe. While I'm on the other side, you tell me I'm going to bring you over and I'm going to handcuff you and they agree to it. I said, when you come back over, because they want to know what happens. Because now if they think that they're in trouble, that just compounds everything. They think if they do come back over, now they're going to go to jail. Now that's more money. That's time away, the embarrassment and everything else. I'm going to knock all that down. And so, you know what? Here's what's going to happen. When you come back over, first, I congratulate you and talk with you for a minute. And then I have to place you in handcuffs. That's only because it's our policy. But really, they're in my hands now. I'm responsible for them. So let's say if I didn't put them in handcuffs and I put them in a patrol car and we start driving them down to San Francisco General and we're going 60 miles down the road and they think, you know what? I don't want to do this. I, I really should have jumped or whatever, then boom, now they're free to kick out the window and jump out the car at 60 miles an hour. Whereas if I have them in the handcuffs, I have that time to pull over, at least slow down a lot. So it is all about their safety. But I explained this to them. And since I've been doing that, I never had an issue. Yeah, Kevin, since you've been doing this and you've gone through a few hundred of these, um, do you agree with the current law on what to do after somebody is suicidal? Or would you ever change it? Would you change it like they go get checked out and then the people let them go and, and they go about their business? Would you change the uh, approach? Maybe they stay somewhere for a week. Maybe the timeline's got to be longer. What would you say? Because I guess the main thing is, you know, the whole, uh, what what is the word they use for people who go to jail? They get on, they get back in again. Recidivism. Right. So right. How, how often have you seen people who are suicidal they come, they leave, and they come back, and they want to commit the suicide anyways because they didn't get the proper need, they need the proper help they needed. 
And that does happen, unfortunately. I would just hope and pray that the individuals looking at them really take this into consideration. They're there for a reason. You know, once in a while we get these folks who know the process and they're going to go over the rail just because they know we're going to respond and they'll get three hots in a cot and out of the cold and out of the wet and the rain and all. But the vast majority of time, these are folks who are suffering greatly. And if they decide to live that day, we get them past this crisis. Boom. We want to get them some help, but it is difficult. You know, there's not a lot of money put into mental health. Um, we need more funding for this, for folks to have access. Sometimes they're waiting two months to get an appointment with a mental health professional. I mean, that's not right. If you're in crisis, we need to get help now, you know, and to build this and make this a stronger system. Was there ever anybody that was jumping who was extremely successful, financially well off and, you know, money wasn't the issue for them or was everybody that you spoke to, they were all dealing with financial difficulties? No, it, it varied. I've had rich folks, poor folks. It, it doesn't even matter. It, it mattered what had been going on with them. And now, of course, I've seen folks who had a lot of money and lost it. And they think that now they're in, in embarrassment. They're not going to be able to keep up with the Jones. They're losing their Mercedes. Their kids can't go to private school. They, they think they've lost it that way. But I talked to them. And, and I remember speaking with one guy who, who was big in the financial district. And he lost um, mutual funds. He was a mutual fund manager. And he had lost people's money and, and he was about to lose his home and everything else. Uh, he's up over the rail and I'm talking to him and we're talking about this. And I go, well, he, he talked a lot about his wife and how disappointed she's going to be and everything else and how he loved her and she did love him. And I said, well, what if this was reversed? What if she was over the rail? What would you say to her? And he thought about this for a while. And I think that was the statement that got him to come back. And then his wife actually met us at the bridge because he had called her. Wow. And very thankful. The wow. whole thing was okay. So sometimes I use this reversal if I think that that may work. Um, and it did that day. Kevin, what else have you used that's not what the FBI taught you? That's part of your uh, game plan that you use that's been very effective? Silence, actually. Taking a step back, giving folks time to think about things because I think if I was over that rail, my mind's going to be a thousand different places and I'm not going to hear everything if somebody's trying to talk to me. Maybe I don't want to hear it, but I talk a lot slower than I do right now because I think their mind is racing. And then I tell them after some time, hey, I'm going to take a step back about 10 feet and give you some time to think about everything. But I'm only going to do so if you promise me not to do anything before I come back up here. And if they say, yes, we have this verbal agreement, not that that means anything, but I've never lost one this way. And I'll take a step back and just let them think about things. And that has really, really helped folks. It gives them a chance to take a breather, knowing that I'm not there. Because there's always, I think, when somebody's over that rail, they're always thinking, okay, when is this guy going to reach out and grab me? Even though I tell them I won't. But give them a break. Give them some, some time to think. Have you had anybody in your own, because my question becomes, why, why do you have a heart for this? Has there anybody in your family that's taken their lives or no? Yes, there's mental illness in my family. My grandfather lost his life to suicide. Um, I have a son who battles with depression, who was suicidal, who was engaging in non-suicidal self-injury, what we were used to refer to as cutting. So this is tough stuff. And myself, having gone through this and... Um, it's, it's hard to understand unless you go through it. It's one of those things. But to be inside the house and not want to go out 
and sit on a couch for days at a time and not want to do anything. And, and in your head, you kind of think, I'm not productive. I'm not doing anything. Why is this? I don't have the energy to get up and do things. I don't even want to wash clothes. I don't want to go to the grocery store. I don't answer the phone. You know, this is, this is, it's brutal stuff. So when you, if I can help in any way, I'm going to, but, and now I want to get to folks long before they get up to this bridge or put a gun to their head or on top of a building. Let's get to folks now. But what, at what point is that? So, you know, to me, you know, you're having your life, you're going through challenges, boom, then all of a sudden you start having problems, problems, and then you haven't thought about it yet. Then all of a sudden you're like, you know what? Screw it. Is life really worth it? What's the purpose of life? What am I really doing? And then you're getting through. What have you noticed is the tipping point to prevent them from going to the next level? Not even getting on the bridge, like you said. Right. It's that you have to want. Number one thing, in my opinion only, people may disagree, but you have to want to get better. That's the thing. You have to be able to recognize this or at least be willing to speak about it and have folks talk to you and say, hey, Kevin, I've been noticing this. You've been staying inside all the time. You're not answering. We used to go out for coffee. Like right now with with guys, I go out for coffee at least three times a week with with some friends. And we all sit around and talk about all sorts of different subjects. For men, women do this most of the time already. For guys, it is so, so important to have this. And sometimes it's hard to make the time to do that. But it is so, so important to get out and have these chats. And we're not just talking about mental illness, whatever. We're talking about everything, sports, hunting, fishing, cars, whatever it may be, just to get out. Uh, that That is huge. But you have to recognize it for yourself. I have this quality of life triad I developed. And it starts with ourselves on the top because many of us, we give, 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 but we don't see what's going on with us. We fail to see that or what's going on with our families. So we need to at least put ourselves equal with what we're doing with folks. And if you use at the top, what are the other two? Right. So we have myself at the top and then we have professional care. And I'm not just talking psychologists and psychiatrists, anybody in profession, whether that's a yoga instructor, a health instructor of some sort. Um, I took a keto for years with my boys because they're half Japanese. And that keto instructor, you know, life coach, anybody in that realm. And then also your support system, your friends, your family, social media, that kind of stuff. So between all of that, it's the building blocks for you on the top. Uh, Kevin, what was what what uh, was your tipping point where you got into the hole and you were depressed and you know and in that state of mind, are you feeling helpless? Are you feeling like there's no way in the world I can get out? Maybe you help us understand since you're saying if you've never been in it, you will know about it. What was your experience like? It is when you find that you just don't want to do anything. You used to, maybe you like to go fishing a lot, or maybe you're into hot rods, whatever it is, and you're not finding joy in those things that you used to find joy in. Go to the doctor, find out what's going on. I went to my regular physician and I told him, I go, doc, I think stuff is passing me by here. I'm just not feeling like, like I used to, you know, a long time ago. So he had me take this test and it's called the PHQ-9, Patient Health Questionnaire 9, and many, many places use this. And it's, it's a test, just nine questions. And you take this to see if you may have depression. So I took this test. It only takes a couple of minutes. He walked in the room with this. He's holding this. And he goes, Kevin, you have depression. How do you feel about this? And mind you, I've had heart issues. I got three stents in my heart. We talked about the cancer. I've had some brain injuries and then a divorce and, the, and all the other stuff. So I'm thinking depression on top of all this. 
but that's when we talked about some medications and some different avenues of approach. So that's a start. And it's okay, well, let's, let's work on this. Put yourself on top for a while. I'm looking at the questions right now. I found the PHQ-9 test on mdcalc.com. Uh, uh, First one is little interest or pleasure in doing things. Not at all, several days, more than half the days, nearly every days. Second question, feeling down, depressed, or hopeless. Not at all, several days, same, same thing again. Number three, trouble falling or staying asleep or sleeping too much. Feeling tired or having little energy, poor appetite or overeating, feeling bad about yourself or that you are a failure or have let yourself or your family down, trouble concentrating on things such as reading the newspaper or watching television, moving or speaking so slowly that other people could have noticed, or so fidgety or restless that you have been moving a lot more than usual. Last but not least, thoughts that you have, you would be better off dead or thoughts of hurting yourself in some way. Huh. Interesting list of questions. So those nine gives a doctor an idea whether you're depressed or not. It can truly help. Yes. How are you doing? So just those nine questions, you know, I highly recommend that to folks to see how are you doing? What, what uh, uh, role did the church play? Because I think you had one disappointment uh, uh, that you had with a church, if you don't mind sharing that with us. Sure. Well, uh, I lost my mother to cancer, and she was just 49 years old when she passed. I was in my late 20s, and I was raised Catholic. I went to a Catholic school, and you know, every week going to church, my dad would be on the pulpit speaking. He raised a lot of money for our local church. He was, he was big into it. But my mother was not Catholic. She was Protestant. Um, when she passed away, the church, Catholic church would not allow her to have a mass in the church. And I'm thinking, my dad put four kids through this school. He has raised more money than anybody else for this church. He's done so much. And you're not going to allow this? What, what kind of church? What, what is that? I was so angry, so angry. And actually, since then, when I've told this story, I have had a, quite a few Catholic priests come up and apologize to me. One guy actually gave me a, an, even a little medal, and he says, I'm so sorry. He goes, that would not happen nowadays. But I was so angry and disappointed in the church. What, what year was this, Kevin? If it's, you were 20, 20, you said 25, you were 25, or she was 49? She was, she was age 49, and it happened, uh, she died in 1989. Yeah, just at age 49. And it's brutal watching someone die of cancer. We saw her take her last breath. I closed her eyes. It's, it, it's tough. What would you say to somebody that's watching right now, you know, who is, uh, um, you know, I guess I would want to go through a couple different people. One would be, you know, you're going about your life. You're going a million miles an hour. Things are you're trying to pay the bills. You're trying to stay, be a good brother, good sister, good husband, good wife, good, you know, parent. You're trying to be a good employee. You're just trying to have some fun, keep your friendships. You don't notice what everybody's going through. What are some signs you see of people around you and what approach should the individual take if there's anybody around them that's kind of acting a little different than they usually would? What signs should we look for? I would say watch for talk, behavior, and mood. When someone talks to you, or are they coming out? What, what they used to do? Are their activities different? And not everybody's suicidal. We know this. Maybe they're just going through a tough time, but let's find out. Or are they talking about, well, you don't have to worry about me next week. I'm, you know, nothing's, everything's going to be fine. Well, are they going on vacation or are they talking about killing themselves? So talking about it, what's their behavior? 
Are they sleeping a lot more or a lot less? And I think people in, in a lot of emotional pain, what I've seen is they sleep a lot or they abuse alcohol or drugs because when they're doing that, they're not in that state of mind, you know, especially sleeping, then um, they're not in this pain. So talk behavior and, and mood. Do they seem like they are depressed um, with their behaviors? Are they giving away belongings? Hey, I know you've liked this, this one particular fishing rod, man. I'm going to give this to you. So why are you doing that? This is your favorite rod. And what are they doing? If they're talking about feeling hopeless or being a burden to their friends or their family. So things like this, we look at that. The TBM, the talk, behavior, and mood. Do they seem depressed? What are their actions compared to what they used to be? Do they seem happy? Do they not want to come out of the house? They're not answering my texts or my calls. Well, we used to get together twice a week for lunch, and, and we haven't done that. And now you're, you're making excuses, or you're not even answering the phone at all. How are you doing now? Better. I try to stay busy. And if I get into this bout of, of depression or something that may last some time, the thing is, I know that it will pass. And also, I know that there's things that I can do. I have two little chihuahuas, my first small dogs ever. They're a blast. I tell folks, just by petting your dogs, 10 minutes a day can, can take a lot of stress out of your life. Some folks like cats or whatever you got, you know, if you're into horses. And I know by stepping outside, by, all right, I got to take these dogs out for a walk. I may be in a funk, but I take these dogs out for a walk and they have a great time. And, and you're getting out in that sun, you're getting that vitamin D. So I got a technical question for you. Do, do yeah. and, and I want you to be as honest as possible. Uh, uh, do, do people who like cats concern you? <laughs> I had a cat. They're, they're destroyers. Curtains. Couches, that cat cost me over $2,000. It's funny because when I present, I put up a picture of my dog and then I put up a picture of one of those, I'm going to say ugly cats, all wrinkled and all that hairless. Yeah. It says something like cats. There's got to be some humor here somewhere in, in this whole presentation because it's a tough one. If cats are your thing, then, then that's all right. What it is. I mean, you know, I grew up with a grandma who had 12 cats, two dogs, two birds, two parrots, two snakes. And my dad, my dad cannot stand animals. And that's his mom. So his mom loves animals. My dad hates animals, but my dad's kids love animals. So he's in the middle. He's in a bad situation. It's just a, <laughs> a bad place to be because he's got two sets of enemies. One is above and one is below him. He, he's not in a good place to be. But yeah, I agree. Uh, you know, animals do have a, a, a big uh, uh, play a very important role. You know, when you, when they say dog is a man's best friend, you know, that's a last night I come home from New York Island and it's midnight. By the time I come home, I'm downstairs in my office at midnight doing a quick zoom till one o'clock in the morning. My two dogs are sitting right there next to me, just waiting right next to me. And they, they don't say anything. They just fall asleep, but they're with me while I'm doing my conference call. And somehow, mm -hmm. some way, they help me come with better content while I'm doing the conference call because they're just around you. There's something special. That's fantastic. I do that same thing. I have this bed behind me. This is the spare bedroom. And usually my two dogs, will, they'll be on the bed here waiting the whole time. But I didn't want them barking. And what kind of dogs you got? What kind of dogs you got? Two chihuahuas. One's a, one's a rescue. That's right. Yeah. Um, and wow, what a neat, neat dog. So sweet. Both temperamental. Like if I put my hand out, they're going to bite my hand or no? Because chihuahuas have a bad temper. They do. But once they know you. 
Oh my God! You've never been licked so much. Really? You never had a shower. They they just lick you. They lick you all I, day long. I it's think, so much fun. To be honest with you, I think Chihuahuas need to go get therapy. They they probably need to sit down <laughs> with somebody because I think they're dealing with some kind of depression or something. Most Chihuahuas, I think, may be the most uh, depressed, temperamental dogs I've met in my life. Like even they'll look at you if you get close to them. But I bet they're probably protective of you. So they'll protect you. They just don't like to protect you. Know. And they good. do. They're yeah. funny. It's my first small dogs ever. I've always had labs and, and Weimaraners and different things. So. I got I got two massive 10-pound Shih Tzus. Okay. I have. I have very intimidating, you know, and, and they sit right next to me. They look like big cats is what oh, they look like. That's, that's what that's I'm dealing funny. with. Well, well uh, Sarge, I got to tell you, you know, I uh, – I also have had people in my personal life that struggle with this, and it's unfortunate because uh, you you it, one of the toughest things to do is somebody who says certain words just because they want a lot of attention. Hey, I'm going to take my life. They're not going to do it, but they want attention. And then those who are doing it, and they're not kidding with you, they're going to. There's the psychological torture of when family and loved ones also use form of suicide to immobilize their family. There's very different uh, dynamics there as well, because you're always going to sleep worrying about what's going to be taking place. But I, th I think it's a topic that we got to talk about a lot because there's more people who are on this side that are sincerely not thinking their lives are worth it. And, you know, one of the most common stories you hear is when a person's about to jump, they'll say they got the, 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 the I don't know how many people it is that jumped who made it off the Bay Bridge or the, the, the bridge in San Francisco, the Golden Gate who say afterwards, from the moment I let go, I already regretted my decision. The moment I let go, I already regretted the decision. And uh, half the time it's speaking to people like you. So for you to have saved those 200 people's lives, you're a hero and I appreciate your service. Well, thank you, sir. Thank you very, very much. It's it's absolute pleasure speaking with you. The, the pleasure's all mine. The pleasure's all mine. Thank you so much for making the time for coming and being a guest on Valuetainment. Yes, sir. Thank you. Take care. One decision away from jumping off a Golden Gate Bridge, and you have this man here, Sergeant Kevin Briggs, who comes and has a conversation with them, saves nearly 200 people's lives. Think about how many people right now are going through challenges. You know, I did a video a couple years ago, not even a couple years ago, this has got to be six years ago, titled How I Dealt With Anxiety and Panic Attacks. For a couple years, I went through it myself. So if you've never seen this video, click over here. There was a period all I was reading was to understand what is the difference between anxiety attack, panic attack, depression, you know, living in the future, living in the past. How do you get into living in the present? There was a formula I needed to get for me to calm my nerves, and it worked for me. If you enjoyed the interview, you may also enjoy this video I did six years ago. Having said that, if you enjoyed, also subscribe to our channel. Take care, everybody. Bye-bye.